Well, I, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. We're excited that you're here this morning worshiping with us. Uh, what a wonderful way to kind of cap off our Thanksgiving festivities, if you will, but to gather together in the house of God as the body of Christ, worshiping him, thankful to him for all that he's done for us. Amen. We, we serve a good God. We really do. And, and I hope that you'll see that kind of emerge uh, from his word this morning. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We'll get there in just a moment. Um, but if you want to turn there and just be prepared, I'll have you stand. It's only one verse, uh, but I'll still have you stand just to honor the reading of God's word. But again, I hope that you had a really good Thanksgiving. Not yet. I won't have you stand. I'll let you know when. Because you, you'd have been standing for like 20 minutes. Just kidding. I want to do that to you. I'll get there quickly, though, I promise. I just was giving you a heads up. Um, so that way I didn't do that thing where I tell you where we're reading and then immediately start reading. And you're flipping through your Bible trying to find it. So uh, last week, if you were with us and if you've been with us over the past uh, month or two, we wrapped up a series that was titled, entitled Schemes and Victories. And it was a really timely and powerful uh, series, as we heard from many of you. I trust that it was helpful for you and clarifying for you to see the tactics of the enemy uh, in our world. I know one of the big takeaways, for me at least, was recognizing, okay, maybe we don't worship idols the way they did in the Old Testament, where they have these forms of, of high places and taking the form of actual figures and names of idols. But for us, it's more our desires, right? That idolatry is really translated for us as our desires. And we see those idols who have been functioning uh, throughout time, still functioning in our world today as well. They just take a different form. And a lot of times that looks like our own personal desires. And so we outlined the schemes of the enemy, the tactics of the enemy, but then we talked about the victory that we have over the enemy, and we have certain victory. Amen? You know that? You believe that? And, and, and we want you to know that. We want you to be sure of the victory that you have in Christ. It's really important because there are definitely times in our lives where we feel like we're down for the count, and we begin to doubt whether or not this is really working. This whole Christian thing is really working. But again, as you'll see today from God's word, I think what you'll see is that we serve a God who makes good on his promises. We serve a promise-keeping God. So what I want to do today or attempt to do is bridge the series that we were just in into our Advent series. We had the Thorntons up here. Give it up for the Thorntons. Yeah. Lighten the candle. They're not looking at me right now. They're looking. <laughs> uh, they kicked off our Advent series. And so uh, with the lighting of the Advent wreath, and I had a kid ask me today, what does the purple candle mean? And I thought of all the questions you could have asked, I have no idea. But I hopefully you heard today that it signifies our hope and our anticipation of the coming of our great king. And here's what I think is really neat. I'm gonna kind of get ahead of myself here. Um, but we actually find ourselves in a very similar situation as did the early believers or the Old Testament believers where they were full of anticipation for the coming of the Messiah. Uh, the Messiah meaning the anointed one 
or the New Testament word for Messiah is Christ. They were waiting for the arrival of the Messiah, his first coming. Well, we find ourselves in a very similar place where we're awaiting his return. And it's because he fulfilled the promise of coming to our world, right? Made good in the promise that we'll see in his word that we know he'll come again. We can be sure that he will come again. It's our blessed hope. It's the hope that we have. Our hope is not in this life only, right? If it is, man, we are to be pitied among all people, but our hope is in Jesus Christ and in his return. So I'm preaching a completely different sermon than what I've got here on my notes, so forgive me for that. So as we reflect on the series that we wrapped up and as we kick off the series leading up to Christmas, we really do want you to be certain of the victory that you have in Christ. And I find great comfort in knowing that just as we discussed, um, we fight from victory, not for victory, right? That was one of the quotes that emerged from that series is that we fight, fight from victory, not for victory. And our fighting is evidence of our belief of that victory. That us working out our salvation with fear and trembling, that us enduring, us overcoming, is evidence that the victory is guaranteed. And I, I know that there are some days where you feel like, I don't know if I'm winning this battle, but I promise you that you are filled with the Spirit of God. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are filled with the Spirit of God, and He is making you more and more like Christ. You know that, right? It's not going to be perfect. It's not going to always look pretty. But God is doing a work in your life, church, and he is using you to accomplish his plan and his purposes in our world. So we hope that as we work our way through the Advent season, what you'll begin to see is Christmas on all the pages of Scripture. And more specifically, that you will know the gift of the gospel in places that you've never seen it before. That you'll find Christmas in unexpected places. So as we prepare for Christmas, I think we can all agree that there is nothing better than a thoughtful gift, right? Nothing better than a thoughtful gift. Uh, if you're familiar with the book, The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman, uh, many of us are familiar with that book, but he outlines five different love languages that many of us speak. And one of those love languages is gift giving. And my wife has that love language. Me, not so much, right? I'm the typical man that will hopefully allow prime two-day shipping to make good on its promise the week before Christmas <laughs> and pretend like, yeah, I had that thought a long time ago, right? Oh, my wife, though, she goes out of her way to find very specific gifts that let you know she was thinking of you. So she hates the idea that gift giving is her love language, language because she thinks it means uh, that she likes to get gifts, but really she likes to speak that language, that she likes to find very particular gifts that communicate, I was thinking of you. And as we approach this text in Genesis, I want you to consider that that's exactly what God did, that he had a plan from before the beginning of time that his plan to send his son was not plan B, but it was a thoughtful gift that God has given us in the good news of Jesus Christ. So if we examine this passage found in Genesis more closely, my hope is that what you'll see more clearly is that God loves you. 
and that he has a plan in place to save you and that he is a God who keeps his promises. Amen? So will you stand with me for the reading of God's word? One verse, but we want to honor God's word this morning. Genesis 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The reading of God's word, amen? You may be seated. Now, in case you're thinking, what kind of far-fetched Christmas message is this? He's in Genesis. How is it possible that we could be talking about Christmas? I want you to consider that Christmas really is all about the anticipation of the arrival of the offspring of Eve, right? That God made Eve a promise that after the fall, after the fall, God said to the serpent that there will be an offspring, that there will be a seed of Eve that will crush his head and that he would bite his heel, right? That God is making a curse upon the serpent, but a promise to Eve. And Christmas really is all about the arrival of that seed. Now, before you start connecting the dots, I just want you to slow down, okay? Because we see this from a particular vantage point. We immediately think, who is the seed? Who is the offspring of Eve that will crush the head of the serpent? And we know that it is, it's Jesus. Just hang with me. I want you to hear this like it's the first time that you've heard it before. I want you to hear this from the perspective of an Old Testament believer who is looking forward with hope to the coming of or to the offspring or to the seed of Eve, looking forward to uh, uh, what it is or who it is rather that will fulfill God's promise to Eve. Because I would argue that this is the intention of the writer uh, or the author of Genesis, that it's all about building anticipation. That the entire book of Genesis is immediately building anticipation and building expectation and momentum, looking forward to the one who would make things right. Looking forward to the one who would restore creation. Looking forward to the one who would overcome evil, looking forward to the one who would allow us once again to walk as Adam and Eve did in the garden with God, to dwell with God in relationship. And the author of Genesis, who was Moses, is putting a spark of hope and anticipation in the mind of the reader. And so if you'll slow down with me, will you let that slow burn begin to build as we build anticipation for who it is that is the offspring of Eve, the seed of Eve. Now, from the beginning of Scripture, we're taught kind of the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and their actions. We're taught how the world got to be the way that it is. We look around us and we see the condition of the world. We heard about it in the series that we were just in. And even though we know it because of God's word, you have to admit it can still be pretty discouraging at times. We can still be 
pretty perplexed and scratch our heads and think, oh man, this is really hard to see what's taking place in our world. But right from the beginning, we're taught how the world got to be the way that it is, that through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, death entered the world. And before you're quick to blame Adam and Eve or claim that it's unfair that we should be punished for another sin, I want you to consider that we have all willfully disobeyed God. That it wasn't Adam and Eve, but like Adam and Eve, you too have sinned, right? If, if, well, Paul says it better than me in Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So had you been in the garden, we would have been reading your name here instead because you too would have chosen to disobey God. Thank God it was Adam and Eve, right? But we can read ourselves into that story and say, yeah, me too, right? I, I did that too. And one more idea for consideration before we outline this passage that we're looking at is why was the punishment so severe for such a seemingly insignificant action? I mean, all they did was eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not like they committed some grievous sin. But I would say that the simple act of disobedience through eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil contained within it all of the potential for the horrors that we see in our world today. In that decision, Adam and Eve, the creature, defied their creator and said to him, we got it from here. We know better and we will be our own God. It's the same thing that you and I have done, is it not? God, I'm good. I'll take control from here. And then instead of walking in the blessings of God, according to the boundaries that he put in place, we experience the consequence of those actions, which is a curse that God pronounces on the serpent, on Eve, and on Adam, and all of creation. We experience the opposite of God's blessing because we tried to go outside of the boundaries of what our creator set in place and to be our own God, and we get what we've got, which is a mess on our hands. We've made a mess of things, have we not? The condition of the world that we see that we're looking at, that we're dealing with, is the result of us and people as a whole saying, I will be my own God, and this is what we've got to show for it. So there are hundreds of questions that we could consider as we look at Genesis that would slow us down, but I wanna leave it at that for today's message because what I wanna do is turn our attention to looking at this passage and trying to find with it in it, traces of the gospel. You know, the early church considered this to be the proto-evangelium. Cool word, right? You can write that down in your notes. I don't know how to spell it. I even misspelled it, I think, in my notes. But it means first gospel. Not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. No, here in the very first chapters of the Bible, we are introduced to the very first gospel. 
to a promise that God made to Eve that one day she will have a seed or that she will have an offspring who will crush the head of the serpent. God is making a promise to Eve immediately after God begins pronouncing the curse on the serpent in verse 14. He continues in verse 15 saying that I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is to say that there will be a war between the serpent and the woman, which we can see displayed throughout history, even up until this very day. And God further clarifies his meaning by saying between her offspring and your offspring, that the future generations that would follow will constantly be at war with the serpent. This cosmic battle of good versus evil. This is cool stuff. This is better than Lord of the Rings, right? This is like we're experiencing this in real time, that there will be this war between good and evil, and it culminates in God's final statement saying that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now again, before you jump ahead, we need to consider that when we read this text, we see the words he and him and immediately think, who? Jesus. And while that is the correct understanding of this passage, we must consider that that was not likely what was in the mind of the original hearers. They likely thought that in a very general sense, someday, the offspring of Eve would rise up and defeat the serpent and that good would triumph over evil. What's important to understand is that the author is introducing anticipation into the hearts of his readers and it's only as the story continues to unfold that it's made clear that God is talking about an individual his son, Jesus, that God had a plan from before the foundations of the world were laid. Man, you read it in Philippians. Paul says it, that we need to have the same attitude of Christ, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, becoming a man. That God, the creator, became a creature. That he became like you and I, what kind of God does that? He knew that he needed to provide his very self to make good on the promise because only he could hold up to his end of the bargain. We weren't gonna be able to do it on our own. There had to be another way and thank God there was because he had a good plan to make good on the promise that he made Eve, but we're not there yet. What was the hope that Adam and Eve were looking forward to? What was the hope that God offered Adam and Eve? It can be summarized in three parts. It was to destroy evil, to restore creation, and to allow God to dwell again with his people. So when God says to the serpent that the offspring of Eve will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is to say that there would be a day when the future seed of Eve would deal a death blow to the serpent by crushing his head. And in defeating the serpent, the influence of evil in our world would also be defeated. 
Not only will the serpent be defeated, but creation will be restored back to the way that it was meant to be in the garden. We can see the good news just sitting on the surface here. Immediately, God is offering a way back. Immediately, God is being gracious and immediately God is being loving and immediately God is unraveling his plan for all of time. He immediately offers a way back to do what? Which I think is thirdly the most important to once again walk with God. You know that we're doing that, right? That we are the temple of the Holy Spirit that we can be restored back into right relationship with God. And as we live faithfully, one day we will see him face to face. So that is the hope that God promised Eve when he said that she would have an offspring who would crush the skull of Satan. In the moment that Adam and Eve face the consequences of their choice to defy God, He meets them in their nakedness, clothes them, and fills their hearts with hope. They become, in essence, the very first Christians as they believe in in God's promises. You could imagine then how excited they must have been in chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 1, where Eve says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She gives birth to her first son. God made good on his promise. They name him Cain. And then they have another son who's named Abel. And then Cain falls prey to the very same trap that Adam and Eve fell prey to, except this time Cain murders his brother. All the hope is gone. Cain is then cursed and sent away And Adam and Eve are left wondering, how is it possible that God is going to fulfill his promise? Except then we read in verse 25. Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring of Abel, for Cain killed him, and they have Seth. Just when it seemed like all hope had been lost, they have another son. Sadly, though, Cain's offspring would increase over and above Seth to the point where we read in Genesis chapter 6 that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the heart of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, which grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. It's over. God doesn't make good on his promise. The promise he made Eve doesn't come to pass. But... Noah, the offspring of Seth, the promised seed of Eve, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God renewed his promise with Noah, which we can read about in Genesis 9. Except Noah messes up, doesn't he? After building the ark and being saved from the flood, Noah celebrates by gardening and making for himself a vineyard and producing wine and getting drunk and laying in his tent uncovered. 
And then his, one of his sons, Ham, sees the nakedness of his father, goes out and mocks his father to his brothers. And we see once again this sin creep back in and pollute what it is that God is trying to do to try and blot out and to try and make sure that God can't make good on his promise except for his other sons, Shem and Japheth, who cover the nakedness of their father. And because of it, Noah blesses Shem and Japheth. And from Shem, we're introduced to one of his descendants, a man named Abram. Now, he was old, and it seemed like once again, he and his wife, Sarah, had no hope. But God would renew his covenant after being without an heir, we read in Genesis 15. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. God would give Abram and Sarah an offspring, except Sarah laughed at God and said, I'm too old. Gosh, I feel too old to have another kid. And we're having a fourth kid. And now Abraham and Sarah, Abram, Abraham is a hundred years old. Could you imagine having a kid at 100 years old. They have Isaac, but are you kidding me? God, you promised me that my offspring would be as the stars are in the sky, and all I have to show for it is Isaac. And oh, by the way, what does God ask Abraham to do with Isaac? But to sacrifice him. And Isaac is kind of getting suspicious, isn't he? He goes with Isaac to make a sacrifice and Isaac is looking around and realizes, where's the sacrifice? And what does Abraham say to Isaac? God will provide himself a lamb. Boy, did he ever, the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, but not yet. God did provide a lamb on that mountaintop to replace Isaac, and then Isaac would go on to have two beautiful baby boys, the most perfect children you could ever imagine, Jacob and Esau. No, they're the worst. I can't stand Jacob, right? What a jerk, and then Esau is such a bully. What is God doing? How, how is it possible that God could work through these two people? But man, if God doesn't do a work in Jacob's heart, wrenching his hip, humbling him, right? And giving him the name Israel. And out of those sons that Israel has, 12 sons, he has one named Joseph, who would be thrown into a pit by his brothers and then sold into slavery and then experience the most difficult of circumstances and somehow by the grace of God, finding himself in the place of being second, the prime minister of Egypt, right? And then meeting his brothers again because of a famine, because God put him in a position to be able to save many lives. And that's exactly what Joseph says as his brothers come to him and they don't recognize him and he reveals himself to them and they repent and they weep and there's this family gathering. Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for harm, God meant for good. The saving of many lives. 
we are among those who were saved. It wasn't just those who would have died during the famine. Man, the, the, the promise that God made to Eve all the way back in Genesis 3.15, if Joseph wasn't in his position, it would have gone out. The flame would have been extinguished, but God made a way for Joseph to preserve the seed because among those 12 brothers is one named Judah, who from the line of Judah, we see King David. King David, God renews his promise with King David in 2 Samuel verse, chapter 7, verse 16. And he says to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever around every turn when it appears as though all hope had been lost and against all odds, God shows up Time and again, making good on his promise to Eve, we serve a promise-keeping God. Because from the line of David comes one known as the second Adam. Paul says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness leading to eternal life through who? Say it. Jesus Christ, our Lord. We got there. The fulfillment of God's promise to Eve is in fact Jesus, Jesus is, do you believe this? <laughs> do you believe this? God is so good. Jesus is the he and the him. Amen? Mentioned in Genesis 3.15, he is the offspring and the seed of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent and in doing so have his heel bitten by the snake being rejected by the very people he came to save, being crucified, he dies. End of story. The hope of the promise being fulfilled is extinguished. Except John 12, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless the grain of wheat, a seed, falls into the earth and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is the seed who went into the heart of the earth and died. But being the perfect and sinless sacrifice, being the lamb that God himself provided, he is raised to new life because he is the better Adam. He is the better Noah, he's the better Abraham, the better Isaac, the better Jacob, and God raised him from the grave, eternally securing and making good on his promise to Eve that one day she would have a seed who God would raise up and would forever crush the head of the serpent. His name is Jesus, and he is now seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. We serve a promise-keeping God. And if he came once, yeah, give God praise. And if he came once, he said that he would return. He told his disciples, I'd go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would not have told you. And he says that he's coming back again. 
Hopefully today the Holy Spirit has placed in your mind and hearts that Jesus is in fact the fulfillment of God's promise to Eve. And if you understand that this world is not as it should be, I hope that you would know that Jesus gives us the hope of salvation, that he has overcome evil, that he is restoring creation through his people, and that we are able to once again, like Adam, walk with God. That can be your hope too. And if you are a part of his kingdom, we live in the already but not yet. Jesus promised to return, and we have every reason to believe that he will make good on that promise. And until then, we live as citizens of his kingdom and as witnesses who evidence the fulfillment of his promise that he made Eve, because all creation longs for the day where the children of God will be revealed in glory. And somehow we oddly find ourselves in the very similar situation as the original hearers of this passage. As we look forward to this Christmas season, we are filled with anticipation, not for the coming of the Messiah, but for his return. And until then, we look for Christmas in unexpected places. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your word. It is so good, God. God, you had a plan in place from before the foundations of the world were laid for you, God, to step down out of heaven, to become like one of us, and to fix the mess that we made. God, I think about my own children when they make a mess, and sometimes I have to get down on my hands and knees, and I have to clean it up for them. God, you do the same thing in our life as well. That God, when we've made a mess of our lives, you step down into our world, and you made a way out. God, I thank you for that. I pray, Lord, as we look forward to this Christmas season, that we would be filled with hope and anticipation, that we would know the hope and anticipation of Jesus Christ, and that, God, we would look forward to the day where you will return again and where we can see you face to face. God, we thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.